I'll go ahead and get started. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a visiting fellow at LSE's Middle East Center. It's great to have you all here um, for the webinar, which today will present results from an LSE Kuwait program project entitled Empowering Democratic Citizenship Through Education, Exploring Rights-Based Approaches to Educational Policymaking in Kuwait. It's been led by Ranian Lakib from Gulf University of Science and Technology in Kuwait and Sam Mahias at uh, LSE. So today we have four speakers, as you can see, I'll introduce them in a moment. Um, they'll speak for about 30 minutes in total, and then we'll move on to a Q&A session. So if you'd like to ask a question at any point, if something comes to your mind, please type it in the Q&A box uh, at the bottom of your screen, and then we'll address those questions to the speakers afterwards. Um, the event is also being live streamed on Facebook and recorded, so it'll be published online in a few days um, if you miss anything or want to listen to it again. Um, and if you want to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so we'll, in terms of how the speaker, how the proceedings will go, uh, Sam and Rana will speak first. So I'm just briefly going to introduce them and then I'll introduce the other two speakers and then let them get started. Um, so Dr. Sam Mejias is a research fellow in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. He conducts multidisciplinary research on the cultural politics of human rights and equity across several connected strands of work in different countries, currently the US, UK and Kuwait. Before joining the department in 2015, Sam was an international development research consultant for BBC Media Action, USAID, UNICEF and The Economist, and a consultant on citizenship and human rights projects for the European Commission, University College London, and Amnesty International. Uh, Sam holds a PhD in education from University College London and a master's in international educational development from Columbia University Teachers College. Um, he'll be speaking with Dr. Rana Hasbach, um, who recently joined the University of Nottingham's Rights Lab as a postdoctoral researcher. She did her PhD in the Department of Social Policy at LSE, during which she explored the impact of urban regeneration on young people's well-being in London. And she's a researcher on this project led by uh, Rania and Sam. Uh, Dr. Rania Nakib is an assistant professor in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Gulf University for Science and Technology in Kuwait, where she teaches courses in the sociology of education as well as human rights. She has also worked as a consultant on ENV, a Kuwaiti organization dedicated to fostering civic engagement in the Middle East on a program to promote constructive youth engagement in Kuwait, which has been developed in partnership with the Eurasia Foundation and the International Research and Exchange Board. Uh, Rania's research focuses on human rights education and education for democratic citizenship in Kuwait. She's particularly interested in the impact of the hidden curriculum on Kuwaiti students' citizenship activities and Kuwaiti female students' gendered experiences of public education. Rania received her PhD from the Institute of Education, the University of London, and has an MS in theoretical linguistics from Georgetown University. Uh, and last but not least, Abdallah Khoneini completed his MA in Power Participation and Social Change from the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex University. He co-founded Rocket 50, an online parliament watch that holds Kuwaiti parliamentarians accountable by making their voting records accessible to the public. And it's a fantastic resource. I encourage you all to check it out if you haven't. Um, his research interests include a focus on civil society, dynamics of informal civic groups and participation, post-colonial identity, and belonging in the Gulf. And he is also a researcher on this project led by uh, Rani and Sam. So we have a fantastic panel, and I'm going to go ahead and let uh, Sam and Rana start us off. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. And I want to say I'm really happy to be here, and thanks to the Middle East Center for hosting this event today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen, and Rana and I will get started. 
Okay, let's see if I can do this. Uh, does everybody see? All right, yeah, great, okay. Okay, so our presentation is called Between National Pride and Critical Inquiry, Citizenship Education and Youth Perspectives in Kuwait. So why citizenship education in Kuwait? When 2006, Kuwait became the first country in the MENA region to create a dedicated citizenship module in its human rights, in its high school curriculum that relied on human, universal human rights frameworks and inclusive notions of citizenship. This marked a radical shift in the approach to citizenship education in Kuwait, which had been previously centered on the notions of Watanya, nationalism, before shifting to Muatana, or national citizenship. Teaching citizenship as grounded in universal human rights was directly in tension with dominant nationalist and religious discourses in Kuwait. And just a few years later in 2010, the module was scaled back from three years to one year and delivered in 12th grade only. The Ministry of Education's stated reason for doing this was that 12th graders were, quote, intellectually and psychologically ready for such specialized information about democracy, the constitution and human rights, unquote. This of course implicitly suggests that 10th and 11th graders aren't ready for this specialized information, but in Kuwait's Islamic studies curricula, quote unquote, specialized information about human rights uh, continues to be taught in the 10th grade. So this also contradicts research that highlights how important learning about human rights is prior to adolescence. And consequently, we have very little understanding of what exactly it is that young people in Kuwait currently learn about human rights and citizenship. And this is happening in a context where youth identities are changing. The recent 2020 election has shown that youth voices aren't being centered. So our study sought to better understand the role of young people in civic life in Kuwait. Specifically, we wanted to understand the gap between the youth civic imaginary in Kuwait and young people's own understandings of their identities and their potential as citizens in Kuwait. Okay, sorry. Okay, so I'm gonna to turn to Rana, who's gonna tell you a little bit about citizenship in the Arab Gulf of Kuwait. Thank you, Sam. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give a brief um, background to the context of, context of how citizenship developed in the Arab Gulf and Kuwait, which is important to understanding uh, young people's perspectives today. So in the literature, we find two main factors that shape citizenship uh, in Kuwait and other uh, Arab Gulf countries. The first one is the, uh, the fact that the discovery of the vast oil reserves in these countries coincided with the post-independence nation building efforts in these countries. Um, and some of the implications of this is that citizenship became, uh, access to citizenship became very restricted and is based on this, the rightful claim to the land and its resources and the, the generous welfare uh, rights that came with this citizenship status. Um, the other implication is that based on, on previous studies and research is that this, the rentier states that, that developed uh, contributed to authoritarianism and limited political participation in these countries. Um, the, the second factor, defining factor is that members of, the, of these countries, members of society, they, 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 they thought of themselves, themselves as members of the wider Arab and Muslim communities. And this was um, in many ways a product of the efforts to advance post-colonial sovereignty and preservations of, uh, preservation of cultural heritage. Um, so for example, we see that from the literature um, uh, arguments that there are three levels, levels of citizenship membership in, in these countries. 
a king, a king group, a religious community, and a nation state. And each of these groups and, and membership comes with its own ideas about rights and, and participation. Um, some of these different levels of citizenship has also um, resulted, uh, uh, it's, it's argued that it's resulted in social hierarchies and inequalities, not only between citizens and non-citizens, but also among citizens themselves based on their identities. Um, and this is, is also connected in the literature to, literature to the prominence of religion in, in the formal uh, legislation in these countries. And so today we see this, these tensions between this nat nationalist cultural specific restricted citizenship uh, uh, legacy uh, versus the, the modern globalized ideas of democratic uh, citizenship and multiculturalism. And this tension is also uh, reflected in the education, citizenship education in these countries. So uh, it, previous, previous studies and research showed that there is in general a lack of credible democratic citizenship education programs uh, in many of the Arab countries. And um, a, a review of, of, the, of the curricula of dif different Arab countries uh, showed that there is a, a focus on uh, nationalist citizenship identity. And this is even the, the case more so in, in, in Kuwait and uh, the Arab Gulf. And in, in Kuwait, Rania Nokib's work and her research showed that uh, uh, research in the, in the education uh, national education policies, uh, she argued that there is a promotion of an uncritical nationalist citizenship as static cultural identity. Uh, she also uh, critiqued the, 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 the promotion of a one correct version of a Sunni identity uh, that is not to be challenged or not to be uh, debated. And according to her, this stifles critical thinking among young people. Um, however, we do see, we do see in, in many curricula a cosmo some like cosmopolitan concepts of citizenship and human rights. However, most of the time these coexist and are undermined by uh, the, the nationalist and conservative uh, religious values. Um, so this is just a background. And now I'm going to hand uh, back over to Sam, who's going to tell you more about uh, in our research questions. Thank you, Rana. So for our research question, we asked broadly an overarching question. What are young Kuwaitis' understandings of their own civic identities and their potential for active citizenship in Kuwait? We parsed that into two sub-questions. The first was, how do such understandings of civic identity, duties, and rights compare to the official narrative of youth citizenship represented by school textbooks and education policy documents? And the second question that we asked was, how do young Kuwaitis conceptualize their rights as citizens broadly, but also within the Kuwaiti context? Just talk a little bit about our conceptual framework. So we know that citizenship is contested. And as we began our study, we were interested in the question, what makes someone a citizen? How can countries maintain social cohesion in the face of social, cultural, and ethnic differences that actually create or reinforce hierarchies? In asking such questions, it's necessary to acknowledge that when it comes to status, rights, and identity, there have been significant conceptual shifts across the world and in Kuwait, from ideas of citizenship as national, static, and homogeneous, to a more multi-layered dynamic and differentiated understanding of civic identity and practice. In Kuwait and the wider Middle East, an ongoing tension between Western and non-Western conceptions of cosmopolitan citizenship have contributed to these shifts. We therefore sought to look at theories of citizenship that helped us to understand how different understandings of citizenship manifest. We follow McLaughlin's model of a citizenship continuum, which differentiates between what is called minimal citizenship which is static, localized, and particularistic, and maximal citizenship, 
which is dynamic and encompasses a broader, more critical and inclusive understanding of what being a citizen is and what civic participation is. In thinking about minimal and maximal forms of citizenship, we also need to consider the role of rights in the formation of civic identities and in the perpetuation of inequalities across different societies. The key question is, how do we reconcile universal human rights with national sovereignty and socio-political structures that perpetuate unequal rights? The political philosopher Selah Ben Habib framed citizenship in terms of political membership and the rights afforded to all members of a society. She writes, the treatment of aliens, foreigners, and others in our midst is a crucial test case for the moral conscience, as well as political reflexivity of liberal democracies. Defining the identity of the sovereign nation is itself a process of fluid, open, and contentious public debate. The line separating we and you, us and them, more often than not rest on unexamined prejudices, ancient battles, historical injustices, and sheer administrative fiat. The beginnings of every modern nation state carry the traces of some violence and injustice. And as some of you who are joining us today may know, Kuwait's social mores and norms heavily privilege Kuwaiti nationality in the dispensation of rights. In conducting this study, we wanted to know how do young people understand such social divisions as an aspect of citizenship and the rights afforded to their Kuwaiti and their non-Kuwaiti peers. So I'm gonna turn now to Rana, who's gonna speak a little bit about the methodology that we use for this study. So uh, our uh, field work uh, took place in three secondary schools in Kuwait. Uh, two of those were public schools um, and one a private uh, American school. Uh, we selected these schools uh, to, to, to cater to the diverse demographic of families, including both Bedouin and uh, 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 urban families, as well as uh, migrant families. Um, so it's also in the national civic education curriculum is only taught in the public schools, but not in the private school. Uh, and in, 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 in the schools, the, the participants uh, took part in activ like activity sheets and group discussions around their views of their citizenship identities and rights. We're really trying to understand how they conceptualize these ideas of citizenship, identity, and, uh, and their rights and, and understanding of citizenship rights in general. And um, all, in total, uh, 109 participants um, uh, took part. Uh, they were aged between 17 and 18 years. And uh, 66 of those were females, and the majority were of Kuwaiti nationality, uh, 90 of them. Uh, seven of them were from other Arab nationalities, four from mixed nationalities, and there is one uh, Bidun who's stateless, and uh, seven other from other uh, non-Arab nationalities. These are some examples of the activity sheets that young people worked on. Uh, so they would work on these individually and then we would open a, a discussion. So the one on the, on the left uh, is, is, is called identity and they were asked, for example, to, 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 to write five words they associate with their identity or to describe their identity. And the other one on the right asked about their own uh, uh, understanding of citizenship uh, uh, in, in, in five, five sentences of words that they can describe citizenship. Um, we, part of the activities were also group activities where we asked them to discuss among themselves. So they were divided into groups and each group was given two sheets of paper, paper one with a check mark and one with a cross. And the check mark, check mark one on the left is, is where they would uh, discuss 
the, the rights, the citizenship rights they think they enjoy in Kuwait and the one, uh, the one with the cross mark would be rights that they don't have or, or are lacking uh, in their experiences. And so I'm, I'm gonna start with the, now move on to our key findings. And uh, the first uh, key finding was that, um, that young people um, in general overwhelmingly uh, define citizenship uh, as mainly in, in nationalistic terms. So even, even though they identified with their regional familial kinship um, or, uh, uh, identities, citizenship was seen as first and foremost um, anchored in the nation state or the country where they are born or, or and where they share cultural specific culture or language. Um, however, there were some differences among our sample in terms of how, how this nationalistic ideas uh, were, were defined. So we find, for example, that the public school students were more likely to express this nationalistic deeply patriotic um, uh, understanding of, of citizenship and love, uh, love to the nation and loyalty to the, to the nation. And they were also, uh, they gave more prominence to their civic duties and responsibilities than uh, uh, the, the participants in the private school. Um, we also find that male students um, were more likely to refer, refer to culture, norms, and traditions as, as important aspects of citizenship, uh, and also to talk about justice and equality uh, as their experience of, of, in terms of experience of, of, of citizenship. And we argue that these differences are related to their own experiences of, um, of what citizenship is, as uh, Sam will uh, elaborate more in the next slide. Thank you, Ron. So our data showed that students demonstrated an understanding of and an agreement with what they're taught about citizenship, identities, and human rights. However, when we asked them to do the activity where they uh, listed the rights that they felt that they have, they were simultaneously critical about the fulfillment of their rights that were claimed to be protected by Kuwait uh, in their constitution and human rights textbooks when they felt like they had some freedoms but didn't fully enjoy them. So in this part of the study, students reported that they had limited they had some, but limited freedom of expression uh, linked to traditional norms and inadequate political representation. And the most common responses were education, healthcare, shelter, religion, food, life, and security as rights that they felt that they had. Other responses included mobility, property, work, and press. But as you can see from the poster, there was a very narrow range of rights reported overall. Um, and across all of the posters, we felt that more students, we actually saw that more students were more likely to list rights that they did not have than rights that they did have. So when we asked the students to flip the poster and list the rights that they felt that they don't have, we also asked them to explain why. We asked them to talk about who was restricting these rights, their community, their family, government, laws. Um, what we found was that gender inequality and rights were the most cited rights that were not enjoyed by young people. Um, this was followed by freedom of expression. As you can see with the quote, there's no right to express one's opinion. And if you did express it and it was not acceptable, you get punished. So it was, there, was, there was by some students a sense that you could have some but limited freedom of expression, but many more felt that there was no freedom of expression. Other social inequalities that were mentioned were those between Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. So as you can see in the quote below, different nationalities have less opportunities than Kuwaitis. And gender inequality was the most frequently cited rights that uh, students felt they didn't have. Women's voices are not heard in society. The majority are clinging to norms, traditions, and backwardness, as one female student in the public school shared. 
And again, most tellingly, participants listed significantly more rights that they feel that they do not enjoy than they do. So what are the implications and conclusions that we, we got from this study? We found significant tensions and fragmentations in Kuwaiti youth civic identity formation. Young people's civic identities are deeply nationalistic, influenced by cultural and religious tradition, but these identities are also inclusive of a critical cosmopolitan lens, highlighting the problematic citizenship status and rights of women and non-Kuwaitis. Generally, the young people we encountered tended to have a maximalist, critical understanding of citizenship. Students' identification of gaps between citizenship haves and have-nots suggests a sophisticated understanding of differentiated and unequal civic realities in Kuwait. It also suggests that young people are, as Ben Habib argues, acutely aware of the importance of political membership for the enjoyment of certain citizenship rights. How we treat those who are not considered the most important citizens influences the kind of society we have. Our study showed that the government's rhetoric towards progressive ideas of citizenship, embodied by the introduction of the Citizenship and Human Rights module in 2006, continues to be undermined by deference to cultural norms that prioritize national Kuwaiti identity and which are inherently unequal. But culture in Kuwait is changing and youth perspectives on their roles as citizens are also changing. And even though young people are aware of these contradictions, our study also highlighted that young people felt that they lacked the skills to influence change. We believe that Kuwait will continue to face challenges until it's possible for a more honest discussion of how traditional nationalist notions of citizenship are changing to be more inclusive and maximal. And finally, we wanna leave you with the, the thought that any society in which certain members are not recognized as having the full range of rights that quote unquote official citizens have will always face challenges of belonging, inequality and social cohesion. Thank you very much. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, we'll turn now to uh, Rania and Abdullah. Thank you, Sam and Rana. Um, and thank you for everyone for joining us here at this webinar. Can you all see my slides? Are they up? Yeah, okay, thank you. Our talk today is entitled Kuwaiti Youth and the Evolution of the Democratic Diwaniya. Marianne Tetro defines the Diwaniya as, quote, a room, sorry, a room in a house, a campaign tent headquarters, and the meetings that go on in both. She goes on to explain, but when a person talks about his diwania, he usually means the regular meetings that he hosts in his own house or attends regularly at the house of a relation, a friend, or a patron, end quote. The Kuwaiti diwania is also often described as a democratic space where government and opposition members garner support. A male-only male space in its inception, it additionally provides networking opportunities for economic elites. As an extension of the home, this private space is protected by constitution and law from interference. While the Diwaniya has undergone changes over time, mostly in physical appearance, it has not adapted much to societal changes. Women, though marginally included in Diwaniyas during elections, have still not been integrated into the traditional patriarchal institution, and this has been mirrored in their inability to penetrate the National Assembly despite political enfranchisement in 2005. Also, the implicit invitational aspect of the diwania contributes to, to its exclusion of others, often resulting in echo chambers 
rather than spaces for true democratic dialogue. Youth are identified in numerous state reports as crucial drivers for political and economic change. Though education is named as the space to secure such change, little has been done to reform the education system, which remains highly centralized, didactic, segregated, and judging by Kuwait's consistently low international rankings, ineffective. How to engage Kuwaiti youth remains elusive. However, cyberspace offers interactions across groups that segregated schools and traditional diwaniyas prohibit, and young people have been creating their own spaces and means of engagement. Thank you, Rania. Uh, this paper explores three online and hybrid diwaniyas created by Kuwaiti youth, described by the founders as the evolution of the diwaniya, more democratic diwaniyas and modernized diwaniya. Each retains crucial feature of the traditional institution while throwing off more constraining elements. The cross-cultural douania was, found by, was founded by two college friends, a male and a female in their 20s. Both began civic work in their teenage years and both went to private schools with English being their more dominant language over Arabic. They started in the cross-cultural douania as a non-segregated douania in one of the founders' homes before moving to public spaces like cafes and shared workspace. The format was a small informal discussion often led by invited moderator and conducted in English. The goal as the founder described was to have a constructive dialogue on topics that are actually mattered in society, something they felt was lacking in the douaniers of their elders. The next group Nikashna was founded by two males relative in their uh, 20s, and after living in the US and being influenced by the debates during President Obama's initial run for presidency, one decided that the level of conversation in Kuwait's douaniya was not uh, conducive uh, con uh, to good debate. The other wanted to introduce something like London Speaker's Corner. And so Nikashna was born, part formal structured debate and part informal dialogue. It was important to the founders that the people committed to hearing what, others, what the other side has to say and to discuss matters in a respectful way. One of the topic, once the topic was chosen, the founder invited nominations for speakers on both sides of the issue. They would then choose being very conscious of issues surrounding diversity, reputation, etc. Their event usually attended over 100 people. Uh, were held in diverse public space, and once completed, a video recording was posted online where the debate would often continue. The third and last group was Hiwar, a group founded by four college students, by their own admission, not friends at all, but actually rivals in the very volatile university student selection. They sought each other precisely because of their different views. When the pandemic uh, struck, political discourse gave way to health issues in most traditional media. And social media, they felt, did not cover tough issues that matters to citizens and residents. This coupled with the fact that they noticed people were missing their traditional douania, at the time closed because of social distancing law, led to the founders to launch an online platform to invite audience members to listen and respond to speakers discussing a wide range of issues. Their platform managed to become a very influential political force during the election of 2020. 
a common complaint across the three groups was that the topics being discussed in all duaneas were not the ones that concerned young people. These are some of the topics covered by the three groups we researched. A myriad of political, economic, and social, and cultural topics were covered. And while many of these have been also discussed in traditional duaneas, these groups were able to engage with them from a different angles and perspective, envisioning alternatives that perhaps the older generation missed. They also tackled issues that Kuwaiti youth face, the scarcity of job, the quality of education, media consumptions, and other topics. This is a list of overlapping topics. It's also worth noting that all the three group were also heavily involved in the 2020 elections as platforms for candidates and debates and as campaign managers and also as lobbyists. We conducted semi-structured interviews with the founders of the three groups, as well as critical discourse analysis of the Diwaniya's online platforms. Data analysis uncovered three major themes. First is the Diwaniya's retention of the private designation despite holding in-person meetings in public spaces and being held in the most public arena, the internet. By using this tactic, the founders were able to avoid registering as NGOs or other political entities, which means their events often flew under the radar. As one group put it, our topics can be, can be very controversial and we do not want to be censored. There is always that gray line where if we are registered, how far can we really go? And another, when you are not known much, nobody cares. When you start making noise, you have to be careful how you are framing things. While all three groups covered very controversial and polarizing topics, none faced any issues with the law. Only once was an event on a controversial issue canceled twice at two different venues before the founders decided to let it go. The use of public venues despite the private designation of these diwaniyas is interesting. Public spaces being used for engagement with others is rare in Kuwait due to segregation and self-segregation. As Maxine Green argues, there are few places where individuals are impelled to come together in speech and action, few arenas where, as Renee Shar put it, freedom can sit down. By taking the diwania out of the home and creating such arenas, these groups did indeed, quote, beat diwanias, as they put it. Thank you, Rania. Uh, one of the pitfalls of the private designation, however, is that the sustainability of the work rests within the founder themselves. They all have day jobs. This means they often peters out or has sadly been the case with all three. Also, it means the onus of, is on the founders to be very mindful of staying true to their principles of respect and freedom, while also being aware of their own cultural capital and biases if they are to be more, include, more inclusive than the traditional duaneas. The cross-cultural duania conducted in English because that was the dominant language of its founders, was able to include expatriates into their discussions when it came to Kuwaitis, however, the English language excludes those who did not attend Western schools, a demographically significant group. Nikashna's founders, though bilingual, concisely consciously decided to conduct debates in Arabic to include all Kuwaitis. And Hiwar founders are first language Arabic uh, speakers, and because of their topics was largely centered around the politics and campaigns, Arabic was their only option. Using Arabic, though, while more inclusive of all citizens, of course excludes non-Arabic speakers expats, 
This was also the case with the traditional duania. Another interesting issue surrounding the second theme, inclusion, centers on women. As we saw, only one of the founders of one of the three groups was a woman. In the interviews, all three groups described their spaces as being more inclusive of women. Indeed, many of the invited speakers and much of the audience in the events of all three groups were women. However, not having female founders is something one of the groups was aware of as being a hindrance to their inclusivity. They blamed this failure to include women despite their desire to do so on the simple fact that they did not know women they could reach out to. When we consider that schools in Kuwait are segregated by gender and that this then evolves into self-segregation in social and work settings, this is not surprising. When women are isolated from men in schools and excluded from diwaniyas, they cannot form the networks needed to penetrate the political arena in Kuwait. As one founder put it, quote, women will find it hard to work in student unions at university because men make it hard for them or monopolize the leadership positions. When women join the political parties, the parties push forward the people who worked in student unions. Unfortunately, the nature of the work in student unions at universities in Kuwait is very patriarchal and sexist. It is one of Kuwait's defects, end quote. When Kuwait's Me Too movement exploded on social media in 2020, not one of the three groups covered this issue. This is where we see how not including women in the organizational structure of the group itself is detrimental. They completely missed or chose not to engage with a topic that was hugely important and impactful to women in Kuwait. The cross-cultural Diwaniya's female founder shifted gears and created Mudawi's List an Instagram account to highlight and support women running in the 2020 elections. This is important because as we searched for democratic diwaniyas created by women, we found none. Where are the women? They are most certainly there, but they are doing things differently. Rather than assimilate into structures that were created by men for men, young Kuwaiti women are creating their own spaces. And rather than asking permission to be heard in diwaniyas, traditional or more contemporary, they are taking action to force society to finally listen and change. They are fighting archaic and unjust laws in Abolish 153. They are demanding equal marriage and nationality rights in gray area. They are fighting sexual harassment and femicide in Len Eskit. Len Eskit, I will not be quiet. A movement and a hashtag born out of frustration with the mansplaining in place of listening that kept happening when women would bring up the sexual harassment and violence they face. Sharing such experiences was considered abe, a taboo. No more, women are now refusing to stay quiet. The question then arises, who is listening to these women, to the youth in the democratic diwaniyas? Active citizenship is often described with words like agency, freedom of speech, having a voice, the right to be heard, Listening, however, is rarely described as an element of active citizenship. As Kate Lacey puts it, quote, listening is at the heart of what it means to be in the world, to be active, to be political. Thinking in this way about listening as a political action in and of itself is strangely counterintuitive. Listening tends to be taken for granted, a natural mode of reception that is more passive than active. But listening is a critical category that ought to be, the, that ought to be right at the heart of any consideration of public life, end quote. Thank you, Rania. 
During our interviews, the group seemed more attuned to their notion of using their spaces as sites of active listening, rather than simply a place to give people a voice. One founder from Cross-Cultural Duwania said, quote, in some cases, we listen to reply rather than we listen to understand. And that is one thing I want to accomplish in a Duwania. You are sitting down, one person has the microphone, he or she takes his time to speak, and you listen to every single word and digest it and properly understand where he or she is coming from in order to see from a different perspective that you don't normally see, end quote. This idea of listening was also visible in our encounter with the founders of Hiwar. During our interview, one of them was explaining something about one of their Duwania sessions. He began, quote, the second episode was about demographics because there was the problem of expa, I mean residents, end quote. He then turned to me because I had recently been vocal online about the, problem, the problematic no ones surrounding the term expat in Kuwait. And he said, quote, look, I stopped calling them expats, end quote. I witnessed a similar openness to actively listen and learn from other views when I attended Nikashna's debate on sex education in Kuwaiti schools. This was a highly controversial topic with two very polar viewpoints being shared. After the debate, doctors in the audience shared graphic stories of medical issues their patients faced due to a lack of knowledge about safe sex. Women shared personal stories of sexual harassment they experienced that they attributed to the lack of sex ed and the subsequent lack of understanding surrounding respect and consent. Then an older gentleman in the front row raised his hand to speak. He explained to the audience that he had come to the debate completely against sex education and was prepared to argue for that side. However, he said that listening to the women and doctors speak, he realized that there was much he did not know about this issue, and so he had completely changed his mind. He thanked everyone and then sat down. Active listening. The democratic diwanias are not perfect. They fall short in similar ways the traditional ones do. But they have evolved and they have contributed to the evolution of Kuwait as a democratic state. As Marianne Tetro states, quote, although Kuwaitis have far to move before they arrive at a working model of citizenship that reflects modern democratic ideals, many of the political stories they tell about themselves acknowledge Kuwait's shortcomings and some are tales of actions taken to bring state and society closer to these ideals. That the myths and realities are still far apart does not negate the reality of what Kuwaitis have achieved or the aspirations of those who persist in their attempts to shrink the remaining gap. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Those were two really, uh, really rich presentations. I appreciate it. Um, I, I want to take advantage of my position and, and start with a question to both of you. Um, that was kind of touched on a little bit is, is the, the influence of, I suppose, subnational or transnational tribal identity, A, in terms of national identity more broadly. I mean, how much did that come up, this idea of, of tribal allegiance, and B, in the conception of Diwania um, or Diwaniat, because, you know, oftentimes people talk about this in the tribal setting of, of tribal primaries being in Diwaniat. So is, is it changing, is, is the model changing now decisively away from being linked to the tribal? Um, so I guess I'll start with the first group about the, the question related to, to kind of how the, these tribal allegiance affects um, nationalism or, or citizenship, notions of citizenship and belonging. Um, 
Hey, would you like pigs? Ronnie, I wanted to give you space to answer first if you like. You want me to answer for okay. Um, I feel like with the the Diwani, the youth in these democratic Diwaniyas, we're certainly aware that um, traditional Diwaniyas and that even schools and other spaces in Kuwait are very, very segregated in terms of whether you are from a Bedouin background or a Hadar um, background. And so um, they consciously, and that's why uh, two of them said that they explicitly use Arabic because they don't want to exclude anyone from different backgrounds that may be um, from public education systems that may not speak English because they didn't attend Western schools. And so they were very aware. And they were, in my view, um, a lot more successful than some of the older NGOs and other groups that have been trying to bridge these gaps. I feel like the young people manipulated um, social media to their advantage and were able to access groups that that the older generation of NGOs and, and activists were perhaps not as able to do. And so I feel like they did, uh, they were aware and they did try. And especially when, like for example, Nikashna, when they would choose speakers, they were very conscious of not choosing speakers always from one group or the other and to make it as diverse as possible. And they said that really encouraged when they would choose um, uh, people from different groups in Kuwait, whether different religious sects or different uh, backgrounds or different socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, they said those speakers would bring their audiences with them. And so it really made the space a lot more inclusive. So it was really interesting. Um, and I saw that when I when we attended some of these events. So it's still not perfect, but they're definitely trying. Yeah, and that's an important shift. Um, I don't know who else wants to jump in. Uh, Abdullah? Yeah. And uh, part of our school visits, like when we did with Rania and Sam back before COVID, when we were doing these ex uh, exercises and activities and giving them the posters, there were interesting debates regarding their, their rights for participation, their rights of representation. So some of the schools would argue, and these are 16, 17 years old. They were debating whether if they ran in the election, they would win. So some of them were debating this idea that I come from um, uh, a minor tribe and uh, the majority of this area is, comes from a majority of certain tribe, that if I run, I'm not going to win, but I need to go and convince all of these duaneers in the areas that they need to vote for me. But then you guys have this relation through the blood, so I'm not going to uh, penetrate this whole system and win the elections. So I have to sort of like accept this and that I'm not going to have this representation in the elections. and hearing them this, debating this and discussing the electoral law and the single vote uh, for me was 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 fascinating and they're this at this level of awareness at a young age among these groups and how they would uh, they were debating how they would win and somehow change the electoral law later on uh, but then this sort of like so this is this is where the duania comes in and this is where sort of like the representation and the the the, the political representation among them comes. I'm not sure if this fits with um, with your question, but this is some of the things that I remembered from our field work. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. I don't know, Sam and Rona, if you want to weigh in. I think it's been well covered. 
Um, great, thank you. I see one question um, from Muhammad Mutawa, um, and I think this, I think you typed this when um, Sam and Rana were talking a bit about findings, um, and, but I don't know if, if Rani and Amdala want to weigh in as well. Of course, you're welcome to. Um, the question is whether male participants acknowledge gender inequality, or is that finding more exclusive to females? I mean, I think they, they did acknowledge it in my, in my recollection. Um, I'd love to hear what Abdullah and Rani think, having been in the schools as well. And I, I can also reflect on this. I think in the data, definitely um, the gender issues or women, women's uh, rights was, was girls were more uh, vocal about this. So um, even though a few, few of, the, of, the, of the male students did mention it, it was predominantly the women. And I think that's the, one of the points we were trying to we didn't have much time to talk about these differences uh, and how they are shaped, these shaped citizenship identities as well, because uh, it, when unprompted, when asked, when the first question asked, we asked young people, how do you describe your identities without even talking about citizenship or anything? Uh, young, young, young men were more likely to mention nationalism, for example, or talk about their countries more than more than um, young females so there is something there about the 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 connection between their experience of citizenship rights and their identification with 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 the, the national um identity that's great i think that gender, that gender piece is just so important um both in terms of the research we did in the schools and also with the diwanias because i it was fascinating to us how how women are engaging very differently uh, online than women than men. Um, so the males are creating platforms to speak and be heard, and women are actually just doing. They're in act action mode because I think they're just you know uh, you know tired of not being listened to and tired of you know having to fit into these structures that were created by men. And so they're really trying to do things their own way, which is uh, really interesting. And um, the spaces in the Diwanias were inclusive of women. Uh, they did invite female speakers uh, very consciously. They, uh, Hewar invited all the female political candidates as well. Um, but as we said, you know, when you don't have women uh, as part of the, the organizational structure, you know, planning and deciding on topics and things like that, while they did cover topics that, that were important to women, it's different. It's talking about women rather than talking with women when you're not part of the organizational structure. So I think, and, and one group at least was aware of that, you know, they were, they did mention that unprompted. So, yeah. Great, really interesting. Um, I see another question in the Q&A from Madawi al-Rashid, um, which kind of connects to, to what, what Rania was just mentioning about female engagement online. Um, and, and of course, engagement online during COVID has become so much more important. Um, she's basically asking, with prolonged COVID restrictions, do you think that virtual citizenship will become dominant? It seems that Kuwaitis are very active on spaces and clubhouse. How do these new platforms influence the traditional diwania and the new youth diwania? I don't know who wants to take the lead on that. Um, Abdullah, you, you know a lot about the online engagement. I think... Yeah, I think I think with uh, so with us, we only took Hiwar part of our sample when we did the interview because they have this sort of like structure and they were like having a, a, 
an agenda and they had this brand and they did this collaboration later with one of the newspapers. But then despite like a group sort of like forming a uh, douanier, uh, having daily debates and clubhouse, having daily sort of like um, the individuals who come uh, on Instagram Live or Twitter uh, spaces, now it's called, and debate topics that's happening in Kuwait during COVID specifically, I think it was increasingly high. And then with the reopening, it, it declined somehow. And the, But now I've, you know, what I see personally, I see a trend and even it kept you know, persisting happening now. And the people still go on Clubhouse and they go on Twitter spaces where they debate what's happening in the political run. Because in, in Kuwait specifically, since the pandemic started, uh, all the political shows on TV uh, were paused. So we didn't have this sort of like engagement as we used before. Usually you would have uh, political debates on TV and then it's during COVID because everyone was focusing on the health issues, it's became uh, declined and they were like, um, the, the, the people found themselves going into the public uh, and using social media to debate these things. Uh, so I think, yeah, it is actually shifting more to the virtual. Uh, and more into like rather than having someone narrating all the uh, all the dialogue all all the questions and the answers etc and having this sort of like framing into the how the debate would go on 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 traditional TV on the social media platforms things are a bit relaxed are a bit flexible uh, people can engage directly with the audience and this is something came across also with Hiwar like they were like having MPs and former MPs in the panels and giving them this much freedom of debate, uh, they were enjoying it themselves. Like they, were, they, they saw sort of like a new way of dealing with topics and having different diverse sort of voices on the panel uh, in comparison to the old traditional way of like debating and discussing matters. Yeah, I would agree. I think also the, that I like how she put it, the vir virtual citizenship. Um, and I think COVID restrictions is one, but I think other restrictions is another reason why uh, youth have taken to uh, going online. Um, it's a way to circumvent a lot of the other uh, restrictions that they that they face. So whether it's you know segregation where men and women can't meet readily uh, in in person, whether it's you know issues surrounding what can we or can't we talk about in public spaces, those kinds of things. So I think that's um, another reason why virtual citizenship is going to is going to persist past um, COVID. Um, hopefully it won't be the whole part of it because I think a lot is lost, um, especially in the listening piece when it's uh, completely virtual, but yeah. Yeah, and I would just add that um, I agree with both these comments. I also think that it also sort of elucidates the, the nature of that gap that's continuing to sort of splinter between the type of engagement you'll have in those virtual spaces and then what young people will experience in their daily lives in the real world. So I think it's important to note that that is, again, pushing that gap even further apart. Great, yeah, it's really interesting to, and it'll be interesting to see kind of how, how this develops moving forward. I enjoyed watching the, the campaigning for the 2020 elections in Kuwait, you know, online, because you never have this much access as someone outside of Kuwait. Um, so in that sense, it was, you know, great to be able to see the campaigns kind of online on Twitter and engagement over social media. Um, and I think that hopefully this this type of thing will will continue. Um, I, I also have another question uh, from Adil Hamazia. He actually has two. I'm gonna start with the first one first. Um, and he asks, can you share any thoughts on what youth participation looks like for uh, Kuwaiti born non-nationals? 
I don't know if you all got into that at all with, with either of your, your um, papers. I think it's a fascinating question. Um, I think we, we were only able to touch on it a little bit because we were meant to do three visits to Kuwait. We only got to do one, thankfully, before you know, COVID shut the world down. Um, I would love to hear what Rania and Abdullah have to say in, in this. Um, that's a really good question. So in a lot of these, I would say Kuwaiti-born non-nationals, um, and this is a guess, I haven't done any formal research, but I, I've, from what I've seen and from my experience, they work a lot in actual groups. So NGOs, uh, activism. Um, so I, we see a lot there. We see groups, for example, gray area are non-Kuwaiti, um, are Kuwaiti women, are women who have a Kuwaiti mother and a non-Kuwaiti father, and therefore they are not Kuwaiti citizens. So they're trying to fight for their rights. Um, and you know, groups like Envy do a lot of work with non um, non Kuwaiti non um, uh, expats who are born here, so who are residents, long term residents in Kuwait, second generation, um, who should be nationals, uh, of course. Um, but um, but yes, in terms of the Diwaniyas, um, we saw them participating in, but again, not part of the uh, organizational structure. So similar to the situation of women. Anyone else want to jump in on, on that? Um, so Adil had a second question, which kind of links to another one um, that I've just seen in the Q&A. He asks, how did Kuwaiti youth engage with views on foreign policy issues? And how does Kaliginess uh, play out in notions of identity? And there's another question that, that asks whether, you know, I, I know that you all were focusing more on Kuwait or exclusively on Kuwait for this project, but whether you think there are any similarities across um, other GCC countries? Um, so anything about this kind of Gulf identity and, and also concerns about foreign policy? So I can uh, have an input on this. I think with the, with, the, with the groups that we interviewed, they would mostly have been dealt with uh, with, for example, they've, they've hosted events um, on behalf of or in collaboration with um, embassies and debating projects like, for example, the northern parts of Kuwait, where it was supposed to be in partnership with China. Um, so when it comes to foreign policy and when it comes to foreign investments, and so these youth groups are actually in part or in, in, in line with sort of these dialogues and these conversations that are happening in the country. So they do engage on these things. But then the question is, which goes back into the whole, with the, the, across the whole paper, is like, uh, uh, are they being listened, or uh, is 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 the the, the that they're holding is being engaged by the other side? So they debate these things and they heavily engaged in this. Uh, but it's how much impact do they have on the foreign policy itself? That's another uh, topic. We saw stuff like. Uh, campaigning online and, for example, engaging and or um, the, criticizing some of the, the, the foreign ministries um, when they came up with, uh, they had a couple of public announcements 
in regards with what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah in Palestine. So uh, there was a long campaigns debating the, the wording of these sort of like statements by the foreign ministry. So they had to pull it and then rework the word and then republish it again. And this was part of the youth engagement online. And some of those people who were part of these hashtags and movements were actually the founders of the Duaniyas we, we interviewed. So, but then how much more than this, uh, and it's actually embedded in the foreign policy itself, I think that's a, that's, that's a question that I don't have the answer for, and we'll have to wait and see how the change would be. Uh, and I'll leave the Khaliji and GCC for someone to actually, to come in, Rania, if you have anything you wanna have. Um, I know that uh, educational policy in Kuwait does talk about the Gulf identity as one of the you know goals that we need to uh, foster a national and a, and a regional um, identity and um, loyalty. Uh, I I know I noticed I can't remember if it came up in the schools on the posters run. I know one of the ones mentioned Khaliji and their identity, so I think it comes up. I don't know how frequently though. Do you remember if it was? It's uh, it did it did come up a few times, but I wouldn't say it was a predominant like a big big. I think being Arab was more likely to 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 be mentioned than Khalij. But but yeah, it did it did come up. But yeah, um, but obviously. Um, yeah, I think I think this is a, a bigger, another bigger yeah, mm -hmm. debate. Um, great, and then I have another question from Fahad Al-Samit, I think more to kind of the first group, but but of course anyone can, can jump in on it. He asks, what are your views about the likelihood that citizenship education will find a greater place in the national curriculum in the future beyond what's there for grade 12 already? Um, if you can envision this happening, what do you think will be the main drivers that can make it happen? Would it be, for instance, public pressure or attitudes, parliamentary engagement, internal reform within the education ministry, uh, civil society? Um, I don't know, if, Sam and Rana, if you have any thoughts on that. Or... We all have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you all do. Ronnie, I feel like you should go first. Because <laughs> you know it's all I talk about. <laughs> well, it's all we talk about, but it's you're also yeah. the expert, so I, I feel like you you really should comment on this. I think I, I absolutely have no hope that citizenship education in schools are going is going to improve. I mean, I'm sorry to be a downer, but I really don't think that's going to happen. Um, educational reform in general in Kuwait is, uh, you know, has proven to be completely elusive and blocked for many different reasons. You know. Um, Ironically, a lot of times it is the, the democratically elected officials in parliament who block educational reform a great deal, which is counter, very counterintuitive. Um, but I, I don't feel um, that it's going to happen. I think most of the, the changes in uh, youth's um, citizenship engagement happens bottom up. And, uh, or it happens with specific teachers in schools that happen to, I've seen that in schools where they happen to have a teacher who really cares about this and they push it you know, forward, but that's not a you know, systematic um, institutional situation at all. It's just good people trying to do good things. You know? um, like for example, like Sam, you, you talked about the, you know, that the students have these, some maximalist uh, understandings of citizenship and I, you know, and, and they did, we saw that on the posters. I, I don't believe that the, that came from what they're learning in school. I think some of it did, the, the facts, you know, that they learned a, a little bit about some of the treaties and they learned a little bit about the constitution. 
So they get some of the, the factual knowledge from there. But I think a lot of um, these kind of awareness of the in injustices and inequalities are either things they've experienced personally or they've seen through social media, through their engagements uh, in real life, you know. So I think, um, sadly, you know, it's, uh, the danger is, you know, they're 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 trying to educate themselves, but like Sam, you said, they they pointed out that they know that they don't have the skills to do some of this, and right. so they're sort of in a in a rut that they can't get out of, and they're trying to to change things, but it's just very very difficult, and that's the danger when you don't have a really solid citizenship education program, then change is going to be harder, right? The change will come slowly, bottom up, like I said, but if you want really transformative citizens, you have to teach them things like critical thinking, you have to teach them things like, you know, these issues surrounding human rights and equality and justice and all of those things, right? So I'm not optimistic, Feds, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I'll just add to that. It's, it, I completely agree. And I also think that, you know, what we're seeing um, is a lot of media literacy sort of filling the gap, you know, the 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 types of media platforms, the types of engagement on media that young people are exposed to that does challenge their thinking about what a citizen can be that they're not getting in school. But again, that's a very organic process that happens depending on your access to media, the way in which you choose to participate, the types of channels and platforms you engage in. And, and those, again, you know, we, we saw that in the evidence of some of the the youth activists that started the D1E is they'd had these influences not coming from their citizenship education experiences, but actually from their mediated experiences and their own, as Rania says, their own personal experiences in life that help shape, you know, that's the driver for them to do that type of engagement. But, but yeah, I agree with Rania, unless we have, you know, if it's not coming from the government, if it's not coming from the Ministry of Education, you have to recognize that the vacuum will exist in a meaningful sense um, in formal education which is an unfortunately uh, pessimistic outlook, but it is it is real, it is truthful. Yeah, I wonder what, to what extent you think Kuwait is exceptional in that, in that regard, in terms of having citizenship education not really affect people as much as their own kind of individualized engagement. I, I don't know, if I, if I was to compare it directly with the United States, I would say in some ways it's not exceptional. I think, you know, in the US we see the, the absolute, um, you know, impact and influence of media on the way in which people choose to participate. And it was, you know, hyper extended through Facebook and all the things that led to the January 6th insurrection. But I think those are the same types of currents, which is the, the gaps that are not um, being addressed within formal education are, are being filled in other spaces. And those spaces are like the Wild West in a lot of respects. Some, some of them will be really positive and some of them will lead you to some new critical insights. There's a lot of amazing critical literacy that can happen just by ingesting media, just by following. Um, but you can also, you know, develop an alternative critical literacy that that potentially becomes an exclusionary type. So I think, yeah, it's, it's. I wouldn't say that's my take, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear what others think about the exceptional no, I mean, I context. I agree totally, Sam. I mean, even if we look at the, if I can call it hysteria surrounding critical race theory in the United right. States right now, and, you know, so I, I don't think it's um, unique, I, but I think that in Kuwait, um, I mean, each area has their own specifics that make it, you know, complicated in different ways. So I think um, Kuwait is unique in its own little intricacies, but just like every other country has their own issues, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. And I know education reform has been kind of on the agenda 
with the Kuwaiti government for quite some time, but in terms of actual systemic broad-based reform, it's, it, um, you know, hasn't changed a huge amount in, in a short amount of time, I would say, or yeah. Um, but I also see another question from Fatima Wazan. She's asking, I wonder, I'm wondering if any of the students express certain exclusionary politics when talking about citizenship, i.e. non-normative genders and sexualities explicitly excluded from the citizenship narrative. Um, who wants to start on that one, Sam? No, I'd like Rana to respond. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, this this was definitely one of the things that were was was mentioned frequently, actually, um, and uh, and it was part of the bigger gender and the whole idea with regards to the traditions and the what they call dog dogmatic traditions um, and backwardness, according to them. So I think there is definitely there was a yeah there there was definitely frequent mention of sexuality and um, in in that sense lack of freedom to be able to be who you want to be and and obviously the lack of social um, discussion and conversation amongst in society about about these issues yeah Sam please uh, add to that oh no no I completely agree I mean I think yeah I, I think for me when I when I think about exclusionary politics, what was most striking to me as a non-Kuwaiti was the extent to which Kuwaiti nationals have just a just a range of rights that are automatically theirs that are not there for anybody else, unless you have a full Kuwaiti national citizenship. And to me, that just, I know I'm going in a slightly different direction, but that to me is like a deeply exclusionary framework for citizenship that, you know, again, like Rania says, like Kuwait has its own specific citizenship context, but that context to me has profound impact on just how people understand what being a citizen is. You're automatically sort of, you know, elevated to a particular status just by virtue of being Kuwaiti. And obviously in the United States, it's the same way. Other countries in the UK, it's the same way. But there are certain specific rights that I was surprised by as an American that you get just for being Kuwaiti in nationality. And there are restrictions that come along with not being that. And I thought that those to me were the were the things that, again, along with gender, were, were most um, cited by the students that we spoke to. Just to add also, like in terms of uh, exclusion, um, when we're talking about what uh, Fatma was asking about non-normative genders and sexualities, um, if you noticed on the slides where we talked about the topics uh, sh shared with that the Diwaniyas covered, I don't believe any of them covered um, anything to do with uh, non-normative genders and sexualities. Um, and I think, and I don't necessarily think that is because they themselves are exclusionary or don't, are not inclusive of, of people. Um, but I think it's because it's one of those topics that they feel will bring them over the radar, will make people notice it's the same way that the Bedouin, the issue of the stateless is one that uh, they were very hesitant to tackle. So there are certain topics that they would not touch because they thought, this is going to make us, this is going to shut us down pretty much, you know. So, but um, but it is one of those things where like with my students at university, I, I do notice that there is um, exclusionary politics. They do, um, and it comes a lot because of the tensions or their perceived tensions between um, their religion and uh, homosexuality or, you know, any of these other issues. And so um, they... I feel like, again, it's that lack of ability to think critically that um, 
fear and obedience that comes with religion that kind of makes them not able to engage. And once we start talking about it more openly, and once we discuss, you know, human beings are for all humans and uh, human rights are for all humans. And that, that means everybody, no matter what their beliefs are, no matter what their sexuality is and all of that, they are more open. They, 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 especially I see it more and more now that they're exposed, you know, to, to uh, social media and it's not like as shocking to them, you know. Um, but again, this is where education would help right, education, formal education would be able to counter the, the cultural religious pressure from the older generations, from, you know, their religious uh, classes and things like that. You need that formal learning on these topics if you really want um, students to be more inclusive and more understanding. Um, yeah. yeah. This leads me to another question I was, I was curious about is how much, I mean, religious attitudes were really brought up um, in, in your work on the ground in terms of how people think of themselves as citizens or not, um, how often, you know, it was seen as kind of a constraint on, on beliefs or on, on inclusivity um, as well. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on that. Uh, And also, I do see a couple of people asking um, about where they can read your work. Um, and I think that the paper for, with the Kuwait program is coming out later next year. Um, and all of these findings will be included in that. I, is that correct? That's right. So, yeah. So there's a potential to that question. The paper will we'll have a final report out um, at the beginning of next year. And each of the papers that we presented are also going to be their own separate journal articles. So. There'll be a summary of all the key findings in the final report, but we'll go in depth on each of the, the particular pieces of research um, in the journal articles. Fantastic. And if you're on like the Kuwait programs mailing list or Middle East Center's mailing list with LSE, I'm sure they'll send it out as soon as um, the publications do, do come out. Um, I, I don't see any other um, questions. I wonder if, if you all wanted to comment on the religious question or comment on, mention anything else, any of your other work. Um, or, or any kind of last words on the project or anything else um, before I'm happy we to talk a bit about the religion. So religion did come up a lot. And um, I think it was intertwined with ideas about traditions and norms and, um, and how this is one of the main um, constraints on freedoms and rights. And um, what was interesting for me is that young people were not saying, oh, we don't care about, we don't want religion or we don't care about religion. It was more about, we need to talk about understandings of, of the different understanding or interpretations of these different religious values. And that was quite interesting. It's similar with the idea of national, being nationalistic, but also being critical. So people did identify with their religions, but they wanted to have a conversation about it and to uh, discuss why there are inequalities among men and women because of religion or because or, or related to uh, uh, other other genders, um, non-gender, uh, non-normative uh, uh, gender identities and sexuality. So there is this need, there is definitely this need to, we need to open a conversation about how these things are and values and ideas are interpreted. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I don't know if someone else wants to, to comment on that as well. 
That's really useful. Thanks. I was just talking to my class uh, yesterday about decreasing religiosity in, in general globally. So it's interesting to, to hear the extent to which it still comes up um, in these kinds of discussions and still quite relevant. Um, but yeah, I don't know if, if anyone else has anything they want to add on, on any topic before we, before we close. Just to say thank you again. Um, it's been really the questions have been really fantastic, and we really appreciate the time to, to talk about our research uh, in this form. Yes, I agree. Thank you all so much for the questions and for being here. It's been really fun. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you all. I'm really looking forward to seeing the the research uh, in in paper form. I'm very thankful that you y'all managed to to get into the field before. The pandemic hit, um, so we were we were lucky in, in that sense. So I'm really looking forward to to seeing seeing all of the the published work that comes out of this. So thank you again. Thank you all for being here. Um, I do want to flag that the next LSE Quit program webinar will be in March. Um, it'll be March 10th with Nuno de Cruz from LSE and Dariel Rashid from Kuwait University. They'll be discussing their project um, governance and spatial change shaping urban policies and investments in Kuwait. And Hyun Chin and Do Young Oh from LSE will also present their research findings about South Korean investment into smart cities in Kuwait. So quite a different topic, um, but a really fascinating and timely one uh, nonetheless. So we hope to see you all there. And thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to this team for, for your fantastic work. Um,